Uh, we've mainly been involved in smaller churches in our adult life. And yet, even in a small church, don't you have quite a spectrum spiritually across, uh, uh, you know, all the way from people who you're not really sure if they're believers or not to people who are keen Christians who are just dynamic in their walk with Christ. Well, in our preaching and our teaching, we have to be wise about the way that we address that spectrum of people spiritually, don't we? And there are times when we may be making very strong statements and we actually have that person who is tottering on the edge of, of walking away from the Lord in mind in the congregation. There are other times that we may make decisive, glorious statements because we have the people in mind who are keen Christians and they are just living sacrificially for the Lord and that kind of thing. But how we put all that together and, and work with people, it, it takes wisdom and discernment and and. Yet that's part of our reading strategy with a book like 2 Corinthians too. We have to keep in mind that Paul is addressing a spectrum, and when he says be reconciled, he's not thinking, well, all the, all the Corinthians don't really know Christ, and they need to be reconciled. No, he's dealing with the spectrum of people here. Um, and then we saw in the, in the balance of chapter 6 yesterday, very briefly, that he comes down to this, um, this beautiful strategy of, of calling them not to be unequally yoked, with unbelievers and, and ends up with this string of Old Testament texts which are emphasizing the goal. What is the goal of, of what God has done in the New Covenant? Well, the goal ultimately is God is building a people that know him face to face. God is building a people who manifest the presence of God in their midst and that God has the freedom to walk around among us and and know us, and, and he is doing things in the world because his new temple is indwelled by him in this world, and they are living pure lives in accordance with the presence of God in their lives. And then that is being manifested in the world. And so what he, what he sees at stake among the Corinthians as some of them are building these intimate relationships with people who who are not even believers, what is at stake is that they're going to be drawn into a false kind of understanding of the gospel, lives that are not pure. He gets to chapter, at the end of chapter 12, he says, some of you have not repented from your sexual immorality. And if you don't, things, we're going to have to really address this very forcefully when, when I show up. And so his concern is that when you have this syncretism of the values of the world and people who are really all about the things of the world with people who are, you know, calling themselves Christians in the church, it ends up being a very bad thing. And that's why he comes to this climactic point and he says, look, it's time to decisively separate yourself from these false teachers, come alongside of our mission, embracing biblical values, embracing a biblical way of being the people of God in the world. And that's going to be foundational then for you moving on in the things of Christ. Um, it, it takes a lot of wisdom to work this out. Some of you have gone into difficult church situations, and you're in the process of trying to transition that church to being more biblical in their thinking, more biblical in their living. You have to be wise about that, and I, I don't have all the answers there. You're going to have to work that out in community and by the Spirit of God. But, but what Paul is doing is strategically, he's trying to get the Corinthians generally back in around a, a true gospel and a true way of living out and being the church in the world is we have this vision of purity 
and living with God in our midst and then manifesting that, shining his glory in the world. Okay, So where we are now is we come to chapter 7 and... <coughs> excuse me. We come to chapter 7, and it's kind of a wrap-up of this section. If you notice in your outline, um, in chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through 4, it really is a part of this call for open hearts and pure lives. Um, I've got it here, a plea for purity, but then that, that actually continues with a transitional bit that begins in verse 2. So look at, uh, look at chapter 7. Uh, let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 4, um, and then we're going to see the transition that he makes as he begins verse 5. But let's, let's begin by just reading verses 1 through 4. He says, Therefore, dear ones, since we have promises like these, these Old Testament passages that he's just been talking about, we should wash ourselves clean from every impurity of the flesh and spirit, making our holiness complete in the fear of God. Those themes coming back around. So the fear of God that he was talking about as we think about coming before the judgment seat of Christ. He says that we ought to really examine our lives and really, really strive for uh, purity and holiness. Make room for us. We have, haven't mistreated anyone. We haven't corrupted anyone. We haven't taken advantage of anyone. In other words, he's saying, hey, I'm not a false teacher. Our ministry is not like what these other guys are doing. Verse 3, I'm not saying this to condemn you, for I've told you before that you are in our hearts to the point of dying together or living together. I have spoken to you with great openness. I boast a great deal about you to others. I'm very encouraged in the midst of all our troubles. I'm ecstatic with joy. Now, um, it's very interesting that he now in chapter 7 starts moving into very positive and encouraging words. And what I want you to see in 7, 5 and following is he's picking back up with his travel narrative and is going to launch into actually the encouraging response that he's heard about on the part of the Corinthians. And that's what is going to be here in chapter 7. So it's, it's a little bit of whiplash here if we're not careful in terms of the, of the steps, but I want to see if we can make, make sense of kind of the steps that are going here. But this first part of chapter 7 is uh, wrapping up the, uh, the previous section, calling them to come alongside of him, calling them to embrace purity, calling them to embrace his ministry. Do you see those themes there in, in chapter 7, verses 1 through 4? Now, from a literary standpoint, we're going to hit a transition where he's about to shift gears and do something else. And I want to show you this transition um, in verses 5 and following. So um, take a look at this. But, but before we do that, let me just have us read again chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Could I have somebody uh, read that for me? One of you guys, would you, do you have your Bibles there and you could read for us chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, and I want us to remember the themes there. It won't, if you're reading it, it won't be exactly like my transition was, but that's okay. Jones, you want to read? Would you read that for us? Uh, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. And li listen for the themes. Listen. When I come... 
When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went to Macedonia. Okay, so think of what you have there in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 in that travel narrative. When I came to Troas, he talks about the door being opened, right? Uh, He had no rest in his spirit because he didn't find Titus, and therefore what he did is he went on into Macedonia. So latch on to those key concepts there that are at that, that point in the travel narrative. In effect, what he does is he pushes the pause button on his travel narrative in order to go into this long section that we've been walking through on a theology of authentic ministry, really, in the great heart of the book, and coming to challenge the whole church to come around, right? Now, look at chapter 7, verses 5 and 6, really 5 through 7 there. Even when we came into Macedonia, we were not able to rest at all, but were hounded by trouble in every way. Conflicts on the outside, fears on the inside. But God, the one who encourages the discouraged, encouraged us by Titus's arrival. So now Titus has arrived, and he's met up with him in Macedonia. And not only by his arrival, but also by the encouragement he received from you. For he told us about your deep desire, your mourning, your enthusiastic concern for me, with the result that I rejoiced even more. And then he's going to go on and he's going to talk about how they responded to the sorrowful letter that he had sent them. Now, this this is a little part here, which we could call the causes for discouragement and encouragement. So he talks about going into Macedonia and what happened. He picks up on his travel narrative here. But let me talk a little bit about this, what I would call the use of of rhetorical strategy in the ancient world called digressio. And what digressio is, digressio just as we would translate that digression but, but in English, at least in my part of the English-speaking world, when we use digression, we kind of mean something that is off point. Is that the way it is used in English here as well? Digression can mean kind of, well, I, I digress. I get off, I get away from the point. Actually, digression or digressio in the ancient world was rhetorically strategic because sometimes you launched into an important topic and just for a minute, to rivet the attention of the, of the crowd, you may move into actually a main point that you want to talk about. So you push the pause button, and you shift, and, and so the crowd is going, okay, so what are we talking about now? And then you, you eventually come back around to the point that you launched from and pick back up the topic in order to continue on and accomplish some other things. Let me give you an example of the way this works in Hebrews. Uh, you know, I've, I've, a lot of my work has been on Hebrews, and I love Hebrews. I'm going to get to teach Hebrews in Cape Town next week, so I'm pretty excited about that too. Um, but you remember in uh, chapter 5, verse um, 11 and following in Hebrews, 
the author starts out at the beginning of chapter 5 in Hebrews, and he talks about um, the, the priesthood of Jesus. And he, he starts getting into, he kind of introduces um, the high priesthood of Jesus and starts getting into that. And he says that Jesus has been given a priesthood like Melchizedek there in chapter 5, verse 10. And then, <clears throat> strangely, he says, you know, I have a lot to say about this guy, Melchizedek. But you're not really ready for me to talk about that yet. Let me, let's talk about you for a minute. You guys ought to be teachers by now. But you still have somebody who, you need somebody to teach you the ABCs of the Christian faith. In fact, you've, you've had this foundation and this kind of thing, and I want you to think about those people who, who've actually turned their back on Christ, and he goes into that warning of chapter 6, 4 through 8, and he comes back around, and he says, now this is, I don't really think that's talking about you, because <clears throat> I think you guys really have had salvation, and he, he goes all the way through chapter 6, and then he comes back around, and at the beginning of chapter 7 in Hebrews, he picks right back up on Melchizedek and said, now let's talk about Melchizedek. Do you see that strategy? So what he does is he launches into the theology of his central section of the book. The center section of Hebrews starts in chapter 5, verse 14, really, and then properly in chapter 5, verse, I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 14, and then really gets into an introduction in 5, 1 through 10, but then he pushes that pause button and he does this digressio to rivet their attention on their current spiritual situation. And uh, John Chrysostom, in writing about Hebrews, said, when the author gets back around to Melchizedek, their attention is riveted. They're really ready to hear because of the way he confronted them in chapter 6. And so what you have here in 2 Corinthians is Paul uh, gives an explanation for why he didn't come to Corinth. He's actually going to, by the time, you know, when he gets here where we are in the book in chapter 7, he's actually going to come around and he's going to affirm them because they responded positively to Titus' visit. He already knows that way back in chapter 2. But what he wants to do for all of these congregations all of these house churches in the Corinthian area, he doesn't want to give them encouragement too quickly because there are a whole bunch of them that need to think more seriously and theologically about the nature of authentic Christian ministry before he gets around to offering the word of encouragement to those who he can offer the word of encouragement to. Does that make any sense? So in the digression of him leaving off in this travel narrative at chapter 2, verse 13, and allowing there to kind of be tension hanging in the air all through the center part of the book is because there are a whole lot of those Corinthians who need the theology of sound Christian ministry and need to think about it very deeply before he comes around to the practical things like you know, the offerings that he's going to be talking about in chapters 8 and 9. Some of them need to hear sound theology about Christian ministry. Some of them need to respond to that theology and, and come in closer and embrace Paul and his ministry before Paul moves on to more practical things. Uh, just, a, just a practical payoff of this is um, biblically and in terms of New Testament, a lot of times the most practical thing you can do is give people a better theological foundation. 
because they just they don't really have the theological foundation yet to make the practical decisions that they need to make to, to live as king Christians in the world. And, and I think that's, I'm not saying that we ought to stop and just do systematic theology classes in our churches, but you know what? Theology is really, 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 really important as a foundation for people moving on in their faith. I love this story. I don't think I've shared this story about Dorothy Sayers. Uh, I love the story about Dorothy Sayers. Dorothy Sayers wrote back in the 50s. She was a friend of C.S. Lewis. She wrote detective stories. And in her day, people were saying, let's not worry about theology. They called it dogma, dull dogma. Let's not worry about all this dogma stuff. Let's just have worship. Let's just worship God. Don't, teach, don't try to teach me deep theology. So let's just worship God. And she said... Um, When Jesus was speaking to the woman at the well, he said to her, Ye worship, ye know not what. Apparently being under the impression that it was important that you know who you were worshiping. And she said that the only practical difficulty of not teaching dogma and theology is the difficulty of engendering enthusiasm for the worship of nothing in particular. And I think that's, you see that, for instance, in my context in the United States, a lot of times the liberal seminaries are promoting a form of Christianity of the worship of nothing in particular. And what's happening is they get smaller and smaller and smaller. It just doesn't work because you don't have enough of a theological foundation to, to build on for people to, to really be driven by a view of God and a view of the world that is biblical and so what Paul has done, in effect, I don't know if I've done a very good job of explaining it, but what Paul has done in 2 Corinthians is he's addressed this great center theology of Christian ministry to try to draw more of these uh, house churches who are kind of rebelling into the circle before he then turns and gives encouragement to the majority who have embraced his ministry and responded well and then moves on to challenging them to give to the, the collection for Jerusalem. Does that make any sense to you? Are you following me there? Some of you are saying, man, I'm trying to wake up, and <laughs> I'm not sure I got it. But, uh, but anyway, that, we can talk about that some more. But that, that is the nature of digression, of, of the way that digressio was used at times um, in the ancient world. Now, look at, look at some parts of, of the text here uh, where he talks about um, when he went into... Macedonia. As far as we know, the apostle first came to Macedonia on his second mission trip. And we find this in Acts chapter 16. And he had a very fruitful ministry there. He, he, there were natural connections for church planting that we see as Lydia comes to Christ and the uh, church in Philippi uh, gets planted. Wish we had time to talk a little bit more about Philippi itself. Uh, there wasn't a big Jewish community in Philippi, evidently. They didn't have a synagogue. That's why they were meeting for prayer down by the river, because they didn't even have a formal synagogue. But it, it ends up being one of Paul's best churches. I mean, he's close to this church. They're very supportive of him. But um, we're going to have to leave it there at this point. He says that he was not able to find rest when he went into Macedonia. He was troubled 
Um, there was the backdrop of the church in Corinth, what was going on there. I'm sure that was deeply disturbing for Paul. He, he was facing some conflicts. People were opposing his ministry. And he says that um, he wasn't able to, to find rest in his flesh. In other words, just in, in his human existence, it, it was just an unsettling, difficult time that he was going through. He was hounded by trouble in every way. We don't know exactly what is going on there, but it just means that he was having lots of difficulties. People were fighting against him. It was, it was not an easy time. Um, and I, I find this very encouraging that Paul himself says, I had conflicts on the outside. I had fears on the inside. He was battling with being afraid of things in his situation. And um, again, I find that to be very encouraging that even the Apostle Paul struggled emotionally. And I, I find that in my own life, I, I have to battle with my inner life, my emotional life in terms of fears and at times being deeply discouraged or depressed about something. And um, it's, it's a matter of speaking the gospel to myself, being doing Bible with myself to, to, to encourage and also continually coming into the presence of God. I find that when I'm deeply uh, struggling on the inside emotionally, it helps a lot to turn to praise and worship. Um, I can remember um, Robert Coleman was uh, a professor that I had at Trinity Divinity School. If you've ever seen the, uh, there's a little book uh, on evangelism, and uh, I'm trying to think of the exact title of it. My brain is, uh, does a, yeah, the Master Plan of Evangelism, yeah. And Robert Coleman, I was one of his uh, TAs in, uh, in a class that he was doing. And he took me on a trip with him. And Robert Coleman would stay up at these conferences until midnight, after midnight, ministering to the ministers who were at this conference. And I can remember waking up. We stayed in the same room, you know, and there were twin beds there. And I would wake up at 5, 5.30 in the morning and I would hear Robert Coleman on, over there, and who had just gone to bed about four, four hours before. He'd be lying there going, thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Praise you, Lord. You know? And it was just, it just so stuck in my mind and my heart that here's this man that, that was just exhausted, poured out for ministry. And, and yet his, his, his natural rhythm of life and impulse was to turn to worship and to praise. And so I find it very, very helpful both that Paul is honest about his struggle here, but then also to, to think about the patterns of turning to the Lord in worship and praise. Kent Hughes calls this period of Paul's ministry the Macedonian misery. The Macedonian misery. Uh, to the shock of his congregation in 1866, C.H. Spurgeon confessed, I am the subject of depressions of spirit so fearful that I hope none of you ever gets to such extremes of wretchedness that I go to. That's C.H. Spurgeon, who was, who was having an impact on thousands of people. There was one occasion in which Spurgeon had uh, stood before the congregation. He felt like he was failing as a, a preacher because at one point in the sermon, he was just very honest and transparent with the congregation about how deeply he was struggling with depression at that time in his life. And, you know, so he, he left that sermon thinking, boy, that was rubbish and, and, you know, horrible. And then about a week later, I think it was, there was a, a layman from the congregation who came and said, can I speak with you? 
And, and the guy said, uh, I just want to thank you for being open and honest about your struggles because he said, I was planning on committing suicide last weekend. And when I saw that you struggle with depression the same way that I do, it gave me hope that maybe there is a way forward from where I am right now. So I'm not saying that we, you know, we shouldn't get up every week and kind of lay out all the problems that we have. And that, you know, we've got to be wise in the way that we do this. But I think the fact that Paul here, we see a glimpse, a window into the fact of, of just his, his own struggle is, is deep. Can, let that encourage you <laughs> that you, you know, you, it does not mean that the Lord has abandoned you if you struggle. It doesn't mean that the Lord has abandoned you if you have fears and, and that kind of thing. And, but we need to hold to the Lord, grab to him. And so he says here that he had these fears, and then you have the but in verse 6. In verse 6, the Allah, the, the conjunction that is there is a strong conjunction of contrast. But the God who encourages, the God who encourages, and there's that word parakaleo again that we saw back in chapter 1. Some of you may have translation, but the God who, who, in, who comforts, the God who encourages the discouraged, encouraged us by Titus's arrival, and not only by his arrival, but also by the encouragement he received from you. For he told us about your deep desire, your mourning, your enthusiastic concern for me, with the result that I rejoiced even more. So, so Paul was encouraged by two things. He was encouraged by the coming of Titus. Uh, one of the things that does help us tremendously is as we have a network of brothers and sisters in Christ, they can come alongside of us and offer encouragement at key times. So we need to build the kind of relationships and network that we are walking with others in the body of Christ. We don't become isolated in our lives and our ministries. Uh, but God uses the coming of Titus into Macedonia to give Paul encouragement. There was a relief of the distress that he was feeling because he just didn't know what had happened with Titus. And so God gives him encouragement in that way. And then he is encouraged by the message that the majority of the Corinthians have responded positively. I mean, think about it. As Paul is traveling into Macedonia, he does not know the result of his sorrowful letter that he has sent. The last he knew, things were bad in Corinth. Things had fallen apart. It was not a good situation. Have you been in that moment of life or ministry where there was a breakdown? Of course, now we have more immediate communication but let's just say you even did it with email where you're trying to sort out with somebody. They were in another city, perhaps, so it's not somebody you could drive over and have a coffee with. And, and you've written them an email, or, or, and, you, and you're trying to appeal to them for us to work out this breakdown that has taken place in the relationship. And you're in a moment where that's out there in cyberspace somewhere, and you don't know how they've responded. You haven't gotten a call, you haven't, and you're sitting there and you're hopeful so that when that email pops up and you see the name, there's, your heart kind of stops and skips a beat for a minute. Have you been in that kind of situation before? And then when you open up that email and the person has responded beautifully and said, oh, thank you so much for your, for your uh, explanation and uh, I'm with you and let's get back together. It's just such an encouragement. Well, that's the moment that Paul finds himself in now. 
Titus, in a sense, is his email. You know, he's, he's showing up. He's able to communicate what happened in the Corinthian situation. And he, he basically says, Paul, the majority of, of the folks have, have really responded beautifully. So when he now, in chapter 7, turns to encouraging them because of their response, said, man, I'm ecstatic about where you guys are. Again, remember, he has a big, diverse group of house churches throughout Achaia he's dealing with. Now he's speaking to those who have embraced his mission. They're on his side. They're, they're joining with him in the ministry. And uh, don't, so don't think that he's being contradictory, that he's been talking to people who he, are, you know, you're not even sure if they're believers. Now he seems to be very, very enthusiastic. Well, now what he's doing is he's addressing those house churches that are out there, those people who have responded really well to his ministry, to that sorrowful letter. They have said, okay, this is a bad situation. We need to repent. We need to, to get right back in there with the apostle. All right, does that make some sense? Everybody tracking with me on that? You, you understand? It's, it's a little bit hard to get your head around what's going on literarily. But let me push the pause button there and see if you, um, if you have a question or two. And I think it's about time for us to take a break. Uh, so let, let, let's see if we can make that transition. Here's what we're going to do when we come back. We're going we're gonna to read through the rest of chapter 7 and uh, see if we can highlight a few things there, see if you have some questions, and then, then we're going to move on fairly quickly to chapters 8 and 9. So let's, uh, let's kind of um, start there and, and see if you have any questions, uh, see if we have a moment to kind of get our heads together around you know, what's going on here. Okay. I've just got a question around um, the fact that there was an open door to Macedonia, and yet when he goes there, right. he's got this affliction and trouble. What is the possible open door? Because usually we see the open door as being something positive and productive and encouraging. Yeah, I think, I think that it was. Uh, I think Paul read the situation. Again, my read on chapter 2, verses 12 and 13... Uh, is, and again, if, I'm, if this is not exactly right, then, you know, because again, the ESV reads, even though I had an open door. It's like he turned away from the ministry opportunity in order to go on into Macedonia. The way I read it is continuation, that what is happening is he got up into Troas for ministry. He, he went to Troas to minister in the Troad area, and while he was there, there was a door that opened for him to travel from Troas over into Macedonia, okay? Um, and then what we're seeing now is when he got over into Macedonia, he was struggling. There was opposition. Um, you know, he was emotionally in a, in a very difficult place. And, um, and so the, the open door, I think, certainly was some form of open door of ministry. Remember, this is following the same trajectory that he followed when he initially came to Troas with Luke and Timothy, and he had the Macedonian vision, right? And so he goes over to Macedonia for the first time. Well, he's following the same path here, going from Troas over into Macedonia. We're not really told specifically what the ministry was at that point. But, but doesn't it make sense that sometimes positive open doors for ministry are also combined with emotional challenge and difficulty and opposition? You know, it's a, mix, it's a mixed bag. Most ministry kind of things are a mixed bag, you know, especially when we're going into a place we haven't been for a while or maybe a place that we haven't ever haven't ever been. So he's not saying that it turned out to be a bad situation that he was in in Macedonia. In fact, the but here 
means that it turned out to be exactly where he needed to be. Don't, don't we find that ministries like that, though? I mean, I mean, again, I've mentioned this, I think, but uh, a, a week ago as we were transitioning here, I, I've, because of all of our big international move and, and all the, the fatigue and everything, I wasn't in a very good emotional place. And I, to be honest with you, a week ago, I was crying out to God and saying, God, man, I hope we've made the right decision and going to South Africa right now because they were taking, you know, time that, you know, and, and so I was kind of emotionally a mess a week ago. Pat would, would tell you, she'd go, yeah, that's right. And she was too. And, you know, so we were, we were at a place where we had fears on, on the inside, you know, about I hope this is going to work. You know, most of the ministry I go into it, before I get into it, I'm saying, God, I hope this is going to be okay. If you don't intervene, it's going to be a mess, that kind of thing. And, and yet, you know, you, you then get into the ministry and you say, man, it's obvious this is where God wants us at this time. And look at these lovely people. And God, we're getting to see all this stuff that God's doing. And even in the process of the ministry, God renews you through the ministry that you're doing. He gives you renewal. I mean, I've experienced kind of renewal and revival this week just by being in the Word with you and, and all that. But it's a mixed bag. It's a mixed bag. And uh, so, so I think that the open door was some form of ministry we're not sure exactly what. It's part of his, his trajectory of mission. And I'll just say this very briefly. In Romans, he actually tells us that he administered all the way around to Illyricum, which is all the way to the west coast of where Macedonia is. There was a, a road, uh, a, a main Roman via, a, a road that, that ran through Philippi all the way to the western coast, and then people got a ship over to Rome from there. I think Paul probably, at this period, perhaps after writing 2 Corinthians, travels all the way over to the coast, because in Romans he actually says, I have ministered all the way around to Illyricum, and um, you know, maybe even came down that western coast and came into Corinth from the other side. But... Um, we don't know how long that took. You know, there was a period of months, maybe a couple of years even. Um, so, there. So, all right, we had another question. Somebody, yes. I'm just wondering the third point. Yeah, I don't, you know what, for some reason on my slide, I'm not sure I, I gave a third point there. So stick with, um, stick with this uh, outline that you have here. Yeah, it should be. So the call for open hearts and pure lives, uh, I only, for some reason on my slide, went through uh, 7-1. But let's, let's say that, let me give you a number three. Let me make something up <laughs> right now. Uh, seven, what would we say? Seven, uh, two through five. Uh, this is not working out. It's really messy, isn't it? Um, so, so we would say seven, two, three, four is a, a, a re, um, let's see, how can I say it? A restatement of the call because, again, he comes around, and you actually have themes there in seven, two, three, four that he started at the, back at the beginning of this bit. And uh, you remember back in, in chapter 6, verses 11 through 13, you had this direct call. Well, this is the direct call again. So number three would be kind of a, a, a revisiting of the plea for openness, really. How was that? It sounded okay, even though, I don't, you know, maybe so. Okay, so does that help a little bit? So kind of, a, I think that I talk about it that way in the, in the commentary, but I'm uh, working from memory here. So, yes. 
my question might be a bit premature, but I'm thinking of now what you said, that we know that Paul actually got the money from the... Do we know the effect of the rest of the letter? Is there any um, response that we know actually the people responded to it well or not? Yeah. Well, you know, we know from the rest of the New Testament that Paul works his way from where he is when he writes 2 Corinthians. He comes back down to Corinth. So think about the history just for a minute. He's going to come back down to Corinth. He's going to spend three months there at the end of what we call this third mission journey. And then at the end of that three months, he's, he's planning on going back to the land of Israel a certain way, but there's big Jewish opposition against him, and he has to change his travel plans, and he works his way around another way. But he does go all the way back to Jerusalem where he's going to be taken into custody you remember the big brouhaha that he gets in in the temple? And uh, there are people there who accuse him of having brought a Gentile into the temple. And so at that point, he's taken into custody. And he stays in custody for the next four, four years or so. He's going to be in Caesarea for a couple of years, taken to Rome for a couple of more years. So uh, what is the effect that he had? Well, evidently, he came around to Corinth the church had been brought together, the church had responded well, and the church had gathered the collection for him to carry on to Judea. So the fact that we have this letter, you know, they didn't, you know, tear it up and say this is rubbish. We actually have this letter that was preserved and seen as valuable and was copied. Uh, the fact that they did follow through with the collection, that we know, we know that from the end of the book of Romans, because he says that Macedonia and Achaia have come forth with the giving uh, evidently, all of this turned out well. You know, they responded very positively to his ministry and, and to this encouragement that he gives here. And evidently, at least a strong majority of the church dealt with those false teachers that we're going to see that he addresses in chapters 10 through 13. Yes, back here. George, uh, just okay. to enter, I, I have a word of knowledge for you. And Andre, it's a plea yeah. for openness resumed. <clears throat> you said three. what? I'm sorry? Point three is a plea for openness resumed. A plea for openness resumed. I, uh, I, and the word of knowledge came right out of my commentary. Out of That's your wonderful. Commentary. Yeah. All right. So at least it wasn't a radical contradiction of what I said. That would have been really embarrassing. Okay. So, George, I'm looking at verse five where it says, For even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. Yes. So I would presume in their travels, because it took time to get to a certain place, that yes. they would have had rest in that place. And you mentioned that you've moved. You don't have much rest on a nine-hour flight to South Africa. Are there nuggets that Paul has for us? Because he seems to work tirelessly and relentlessly. He seems to have this energy that is just insatiable in spreading the gospel. For us today, who could hop on a plane and in nine hours' time I could preach in England, right. where's the rest and how do we, how do we um, deal with the fact that we have human bodies that get tired in the ministry yeah. and yet we still, on our Sabbath day, I find myself worrying about situations that are in my congregation. So although I have a Sabbath day and my phone is off and I'll watch a movie or I'll... Yeah go and have coffee with a friend, at the back of my mind, there's still people who need Jesus. Yeah. So is there a nugget in Paul's teachings mm. that he tapped into that gave him this drive? 
Yeah, that's a great, that is a great, very practical question that all of us struggle with. Um, you know, in any type of ministry that you do, uh, you, you guys who are on the front lines of, of church ministry, it's just always right there. We were talking yesterday about, you know, when you, like uh, this brother's phone is the church phone. You know, so you know, on a day off, uh, people were, are calling the church, they're calling him. And so we were talking about trying to work out a structure which is a little bit different than that where, you know, the church has at least the ability to, to he can put on call forwarding to somebody else for a period of time to have a break from the, the relentless demands of ministry. So I know that when you're living in the midst of community, uh, it, is, it is very difficult. In my, in my life in ministry, the way it works is if you're keen on the church, you're very involved in the church, and then you're uh, very involved in school and mentoring, and you're very involved in writing and all these kind of stuff, things, uh, there's never enough time to get everything done. And Pat will tell you that my, my temptation is that there's always something else every day that I should be doing, and therefore that can wear you out emotionally as well. I think, I think the answer to that is twofold. One is there are times of ministry that are just exhausting. You know, when, when God calls you to, to do certain things that, that may be a sprint, you know, um, in your world it may be that it, it's a conversion or a, a coming together of a bunch of different events and, and all of a sudden in the middle of that you have a tragedy take place among your, your body and, and, you know, all of these different kinds of things. So there are times which are, are sprints. And I think that in, that in the midst of that, God does drive us to deeper dependence. You know, we, we cry out to the Lord and, and we say, Lord, I'm at the end of my, my abilities. Please come, come through. And, and miraculously, at times in the midst, God renews us actually in the, in the middle of, of doing ministry. But it, is, it, is, it can be tremendously exhausting. And we have to be wise about that. I mean, we have, to, we have to recognize that sometimes we're setting up patterns that are not healthy. Because if you have, if you have that constantly, where you have crisis after crisis and demand after man after demand, and you don't build any kind of space in for the ability to, to renew and catch up and rest just, just practically, then you know, you're setting yourself up for a dangerous situation, right? And, um, and, and then let me say, and then I, I have a feeling I know where, where Pat's probably wanting to go with this, but the other, the other big thing that we need to do is to think biblically and deeply about building rhythms into normal life uh, and, and again, I'm not the best person to, you know, authoritatively speak to this, but I will say that in our lives, uh, at times, we've had a rhythm of Sabbath, a rhythm of Shabbat. Sabbath is not a law for us anymore as believers under the new covenant. But what I want to say to my ministerial friends is, look, this made the top 10. It's important. It's a principle that we see clearly in Scripture that God said, you don't work a donkey seven days a week, and therefore, it's not healthy to work people seven days a week. So the difficulty when you're in ministry in that is uh, that what we think of as Shabbat, you know, Sunday, often in Christian thinking, although Shabbat was Saturday, it was, you know, the last day of the week, 
Uh, we, we tend to think that would normally be the day of Sabbath, but it's not. That's not Shabbat for, for most of us who are in ministry because we're preaching, we're teaching, we're pouring ourselves out. So my practical suggestion for you is that if you do not have a day where you don't have to do anything, then you need to seriously consider building that into your schedule, working with your leaders of your church and saying, look, my long-term health of my personal life and my family life is foundational for the continuing ministry of our church. And, and it's biblical to have a rhythm of life. If you look at the theology of Shabbat, of Sabbath, uh, in the Bible, it's grounded in creation. Uh, God built that rhythm into the world. When God rested on the seventh day, it was not because God was tired. It was because God said, the way my universe works is rhythmically. And, it, and then secondly, in Old Testament, Shabbat is grounded in Exodus. You know why? Slaves don't get a day off. But children do. And so uh, Shabbat is, is a, a sign of liberation. And I don't know about South African culture. I'm guessing that's a lot like American culture. That's the drive, 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 seven days a week. If you're not working all the time, you're doing something wrong. That's not biblical. And it's not wise in terms of Christian ministry. And the, the reality is, if, if, if we had 11-day weeks, you'd be doing the same thing. It's not that there just aren't enough days when there are six days. I actually got convicted about this while I was doing Ph.D. work, one of the most demanding times in my life. But what I found was, when I was listening to the rhythms of Shabbat and taking at least a good chunk of one day where I was just off for renewal, for face-to-face -face time with my family, for a, a lengthy time of personal worship, uh, for celebration, and I'll tell you about that in just a second. Then what I found was I was far more productive in those other six days because I wasn't running myself into the ground. And some of you right now are being tempted to think, well, that's a great idea. It's just not practical with, with my life and schedule. Shame on you. Conform your life to, to the Bible, to biblical principles, and see what happens. The other thing that we did uh, with Sabbath, with, with Shabbat, was we had uh, Sabbath tea. And what we would do, my wife is, is a wonderful cook. She's also big on tea, kind of British kind of tea. And so what we would do is, is the Sabbath meal, a lot of times for us it was Saturday evening, uh, and what we would do is that would be the special meal of the week with our family. We would have candles. We would have lovely music. Uh, it would all be finger food, so it would be apples and caramel sauce and popcorn and uh, tarts and uh, what we call pigs in a blanket, little sausages inside of lovely rolls and, and all of these kind of things. And we, we, our kids grew up with that rhythm of life where they knew that day was a different kind of day from all the other days of the week. They knew I was going to be more present. They knew that we were going to be resting. We were going to have fun, do different kinds of things, have renewal. And we even had a Sabbath box for our children that had toys that they could only use on that day. Because, again, we wanted to build their sense of special celebration, special rhythm, and they built in that. And we were telling uh, one of the brothers yesterday that uh, when Shabbat came, let's say that I had been traveling or something, and, and I would say, 
uh, to the kids, guys, mom and I are kind of tired tonight. Why don't we just go out for hamburgers or pizza tonight rather than having Sabbath tea? The kids would say, we can't miss Sabbath tea. We've got to do Sabbath tea. We don't want to go out for pizza or burgers. We need to have Sabbath tea because they, they so love the beauty of that rhythm in life. And so I think that part of the answer is we need to pay a price to be countercultural and then work with the, our leadership, you know, who govern us or whatever and say, will you help me figure out how to incorporate this into my life so that I can be healthier? And, and then you understand that there are times that, boy, you have to just kind of work yourself and it's going to be exhausting and then, and then you recover from that. But then you build wisdom into recovery. Like I know when we get back to the States after this trip, the first week's going to just be kind of tough physically because of jet lag and, I'm sorry, back to Canada, not the States, back to Canada, <laughs> back to North America. Um, it's just going to be tough, you know, jumping time zones. And, and so I've got to, my tendency would be to say, okay, I get back on the 25th. On the 26th, I need to spend six hours writing. And that's just not reality. So I, I'm going to have to be wise and say, I'm going to have to give myself grace of a few days to physically and emotionally and everything make the transition back. So part of it's a wisdom thing too. So sacrificial ministry, pouring yourself out for ministry, trusting God in the midst of that to renew you. And then the main thing in some ways is, is building in those, those principles, those rhythms of life in a way that you're having a healthy life. I've seen too many brothers and sisters burn out in ministry, blow out sexually, blow out in terms of money, these different kinds of things. And part of it was just an unbiblical form of mismanaging life. And again, I'm not the best on, on how to do this, but I think it's what we need to be working for and striving for. Does that help a little bit? Okay. All right, let's take a break. Uh, I think, is this one of those five-minute breaks? or Five-minute Sabbath rest. Uh, it's five-minute Sabbath rest from me talking. I, I was just thinking, I, I'm battling with a contradiction. I can't believe that you ate pigs in a blanket on Sabbath. That just yeah. presents all kinds of problems for me. That does, that does sound contradictory, doesn't it? Okay. Shabbat Shalom. Peace of Sabbath to you for five minutes. <laughs>